Welcome back to the Elevate podcast. I'm excited to share another episode from the Elevate archives today. If you haven't heard of Derek Sivers, he's one of the best minds and creative thinkers around. He's just really hard to get a hold of. And so I was thrilled to have the chance to interview him earlier this year. Derek is a musician, a former clown, and a former entrepreneur. And our conversation covered a wide range of topics, including the importance of changing your mind and how to do that. I hope you enjoy my very interesting and interactive conversation with Derek. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate podcast. Our quote for today is from Earl Nightingale, and it is, creativity is the natural extension of our enthusiasm. Our guest today, Derek Sivers, is a true Renaissance man and brilliant thinker and creative mind. He's a musician, a former clown, a former entrepreneur, having founded CD Baby, one of the first successful e-commerce businesses. And Derek's also a prolific writer and thinker who's constantly looking for fresh perspectives and ideas. Derek, welcome. I'm excited to have you join us on the Elevate podcast today. I've been looking forward to this interview for a long time. Thanks, Bob. Me too. All right. So you have a fascinating, as I said, renaissance career that's gone in a few different directions. And, and as I mentioned in the intro, can you give us a quick history tour? And I promise we won't, we won't focus on, on past achievements, but <laughs> it's very, it, it is a unique uh, path that you've taken. So I, I want to make sure we, we set the foundation. Sure. It's funny. It didn't seem very unique to me until I got out of it. And then people look at me weird when I tell them about my past. When you're in it, it just feels normal. So the deal is, ever since I was 14 years old, I decided I wanted to be a successful musician. So I just set out on that path, which is just one of the best things that ever happened to me. It's like, it almost doesn't matter what you pick. I think, especially at this age in your teens and your 20s, to just have some focus of direction, to just be pursuing something just changes everything. Because when you're pursuing something, then you're, you're looking out for clues on how to be successful at that. And then in doing that, you, you know, achieve other things along the way. But yeah, I just set out to be a successful musician and I really dove into it hard. So I went to Berklee School of Music in Boston. Um, I joined a circus at the age of 18 because it was a paying gig. I was the ringleader MC of the circus, which meant they hired me as the musician, but then they told me that the previous musician was also the ringleader MC. And so from the age of 18 to 29, I was the ringleader MC of a circus and did over a thousand shows. I got a job playing guitar for a Japanese pop star, got to tour the world doing that, playing to audiences of about 12,000 people when I was like 22 years old. Moved to New York City, got into the music business working inside Warner Brothers. Learned a lot about how the inside of the music industry works from there. And then I was a freelance musician, just doing the hustle, doing whatever it takes to get a gig. So I actually, I quit my last job in 1992. I haven't had a job since 92. And I've been yeah. a freelance agent ever since. So I was a full-time musician in New York City, doing whatever it takes to make a buck. And that's what I was doing when I was selling my own CD on my band's website. And it took a few months of work to figure out the whole kind of e-commerce thing. Back in 1997, you know, there was no PayPal. Amazon yeah. was just a bookstore. And so the only way that you could have 
a buy now button on your website was it was like a, about $1,000 in setup fees to get a credit card merchant account. They actually had to send an inspector out to your location to make sure you were a valid business. I had to incorporate. I had to set up a separate bank account for my corporation. They wouldn't let you do it under your personal name. And after about three months of hard work and $1,000 in setup fees, I had a buy now button on my website. And so my other musician friends in New York City said, whoa, dude, can you do that for me too? <laughs> and so that's how my company CD Baby started. Is That was just me helping out my fellow musician friends in New York. But friends told friends. And um, yeah, back in 1997, things were a little different. And if you were a musician with a CD that you wanted to sell, there was basically only one way to do it. And that was a guy named Derek in New York that could do it for you. And so that's why CD Baby uh, took off so fast and quickly became the largest seller of independent music on the web. And I ran it for 10 years until I got sick of it. And I sold the company in 2008. After that, uh, I don't know, I just became a kind of pseudo retired intellectual at large, being a public speaker, author, TED speaker kind of guy. And I think that brings us up to today. So it occurs to me that you're the inverse of the prom king or queen or, or high school athlete who just loves reliving that past chapter over and over again. You've said you don't consider yourself an entrepreneur anymore and have tried to avoid being labeled as a business guru or talking about past achievements. Was there a specific moment that made you realize you didn't want to be considered in that way? I know a lot of things, people think entrepreneurialism is, is a DNA thing. And how did doing that force you to redefine yourself? Hmm. Two things. Well, for one, it just feels icky to hmm. speak in present tense about something that's really just historical for me. You know, like, how many times can you tell the story about something you did in high school, right? For a lot of people, a lot. <laughs> well, no, I hate that feeling. Like, God, imagine how it must feel to be like, you know, like Macaulay Culkin. Yeah. Like every day people are like, hey man, Home Alone. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm 40. I was a kid, I did yeah. Home Alone, let it go, you know? But I, I thought more about it and I, I realized that you have to keep earning your title or it expires, right? Like let's use the high school example, right? Like yeah. somebody who played football in high school can't call himself an athlete forever. And someone right. who did something successful long ago can't keep calling himself a success. You have to keep earning it. You can't say, I am successful, like a present tense verb, right. if it's something that you did 20 years ago. I think it doesn't count anymore. It's past tense. I was a success. And if you want that verb to be present tense, you have to keep doing it. Like success comes from doing, not declaring. Right. And I think when you hold on to an old title, like if you say, I'm an entrepreneur, well, that gives you satisfaction without the action, right? Like <laughs> you can't say I am an entrepreneur if you haven't started a company in a long time because an entrepreneur means somebody who starts something, right? right. So if, if it's been a long time since you started something, I'd say you're not, maybe you're a manager now or maybe you're, you know, you used to be an entrepreneur. Uh, maybe you're retired. Or maybe you're retired. <laughs> so, but here's the real problem. And the reason I forced myself to overcompensate and kind of refuse to speak in present tense about these things is that I think if you use the title without doing the work, 
you fool yourself into thinking that future success is assured because you can think, uh, this is who I am, right? Like right. the high school version, I am an athlete. I am an entrepreneur or even worse, I am a successful person. That premature sense of satisfaction can keep you from doing the hard work that's actually necessary because you can get overconfident. So I made a point to stop fooling myself, to be honest about what's in my past and what's actually in my present. And lastly, I think that if you don't like the idea of losing your title, then you have to do something about it to keep it, right? So this goes for titles like leader or risk taker or even good friend. Like you call yourself a good friend to this person. Are you still actively a good friend or did you just used to be a good friend and you're kind of coasting on that status? So yeah, I constantly reevaluate what's actually present and what's actually past. Yeah, I think what's really interesting about that is the notion the the words matter in terms of, right, are you that or, or what you're doing? I had written an article recently, um, similar to when, when talking to kids around saying you're smart or you're not smart or versus actions, right? You're assigning, you're assigning a character thing rather than talking about the action or, or what you do. The entrepreneur thing is a great example, right? If you haven't started a business or done anything entrepreneurial in 10 years, almost by definition, that's not very entrepreneurial. Right. The thing you're talking about, um, the woman who did the most research about this and had written the most about it is Carol Dweck, D-W-E-C-K, wrote a great book called Mindset. Highly recommend it to anybody interested in the subject. And you're right, I was probably, I read that book enthusiastically and took copious notes. And so <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if that, um, she calls it the fixed mindset versus the growth mindset. Right. The fixed mindset says you are good at math. The growth mindset says you studied hard. You did a good job. It's about your actions. So you're right. I was probably very influenced by that philosophy. Well, but the spin you put on it that's interesting. There was some research even out there. This kind of goes off a little bit on a tangent about sometimes we, like you said, the good friend one, I thought is an interesting example. Like you were a good friend. Sometimes we do one small good thing and we think that excuses a lot of, right. a lot of bad things. Like, you know, there, there's been some data on this. Like if you vote for a certain candidate, whether it's gender or race, but you are, you are gender biased or racial biased, but you make that vote, you suddenly think that your behavior is excused <laughs> in, uh. in other areas. And I wonder again, yeah, like I, I was a good friend. Well, that, that expires, I guess, <laughs> if you haven't been a good yeah. friend recently. It's, I mean, <laughs> if we zoom up, up, up and go meta, 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 I adopt philosophies not because they're true, but because they're useful to me at the time, right? right? Like I'm very kind of utilitarian about that. So I just find it useful. This, this, you know, my whole rant that I did a few minutes ago about this, I find that philosophy useful because it keeps me focused on the action and not coasting on my past success. But this philosophy might not be useful to somebody who's, you know, not in the situation. You just kind of, you, you listen to these things on podcasts like this and you just decide if this works for you. If this philosophy makes you take action, then it's a good one. If it doesn't, then it's not. But, but it, it goes to our identity. And I think, you know, thinking about the subject of, of kind of embracing fear, right? And then willing to say, hey, that's, that's not who I am anymore. You know, what, what am I? You know, think about in, in work situations, I think there's still a lot of people who are afraid to share more of their personal selves and professional 
environments because of fear, fear of, of, of judgment, being more open, vulnerability. I mean, I mm. think a lot, a lot of this all comes into play, right? That's a tough one. I'm, I'm curious to ask you more about that because I've had a rule of thumb ever since I was a teenager that's served me well, <laughs> that says, whatever scares you, go do it because then you won't be scared anymore. You could almost see the whole world is like a to-do list of, right. of fear. Whatever you're scared of, that's what you should be doing because as soon as you do it, you're not scared of it anymore. But what's best for you isn't what's best for others. Look up something called radical honesty. If you know anybody listening to this, go search the web for radical honesty and you'll probably find the top hit should be an article in Esquire magazine called, I Think You Are Fat. <laughs> um, everyone should read that. It's super, super, super interesting. It's one of the most interesting things I've ever read on the web in 20 years. That's saying a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's a profile of this funny guy in South Carolina who says that radical honesty is a philosophy that he lives by. And he goes around his day-to-day -day life being radically honest with no filter at all. He tells everyone around him, what he's honestly thinking at all times. So, you know, the waitress says, how's your meal? And he dumps the radical truth on her. Yeah. So <laughs> it's not radical candor. This is different than Kim Scott's radical candor. This is probably more, right, her, her definition of obnoxious aggression. Right. And so reading it, though, I liked the idea at first. And I remember like back when it first when I first read it, uh, I actually remember where I was. It was like 2007 because I, I presented it to my girlfriend at the time. I was like, we got to do this radical honesty. This is the way to go. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that honesty is like nudity. For intimate and committed relationships, right. it can bring you closer. But for most situations, nobody wants to see your junk. <laughs> so I think that most interactions in the world are transactional. And when I'm hiring someone, I want them to be professional. And so I thought about what that means. So I think to be professional means focusing on the delivered work, not on your personal and fleeting feelings or mood at this moment, right? So we say someone is professional if they leave their personal problems at home and come to work ready to focus on others. So your question leads me to think that, that maybe everything must be going very well for you at the workplace to be concerned about more holistic things like people sharing their personal selves more at work. So I think that's actually a good sign that you're asking this question, assuming that you were asking it from your point of view. But I think that anything can be done to a fault, right? Like yeah. if someone is only professional and never sharing their feelings, well, then they might boil over with frustration and snap instead of addressing a problem like, you know, ambitiously wanting to do more inside the company, right. or if they're feeling resentment for feeling overworked, if they kept all that bottled up, then that might be being professional to a fault. But in general, I don't know, what are your thoughts on this? I'm curious where that question came from. Well, the topic's interesting, and I'm, I want to clarify something you said earlier. So you, you said you believe that doing everything everything that, that makes you afraid is, is sort of the answer, right? Because then you won't be afraid of everything. Were you saying that from your perspective or in the same context of, you know, what's good for you? Or, or do you believe that to be true of other people that if they would just 
lean into their fears, then it would be much better for them? Or, or do you think that's more about you? Or do you believe in that as a rule for everyone? Oh, I think a rule of, yeah, I think that's a rule of life. I think, yeah. in, in fact, <laughs> so much so that I actually, I turned it into a lullaby for my kid when he was like two years old, when he's sleeping at night. Like, I want this to get into his subconscious. You scare the crap out of him when he's going to bed? No, no I made a little song. I, I sing him a song at night that goes, um, whatever scares you, go do it. Whatever scares you, go do it. Whatever scares you, go do it. Because then you won't be scared anymore. Won't be scared anymore. Won't be scared anymore. So that's like, that's his lullaby that he's fallen asleep to many hundreds of times since he was two years old. And it, and it helps that you can actually sing and are a musician. <laughs> well, if I sang that to my kid, it would actually scare them the singing of it. Would scare them. <laughs> you know, I was like singing him other little Beatles songs or whatever his lullabies. And I thought, wait a minute, like, I'm a songwriter. I can do this. And so I just like impromptu, I just like, thought about getting that message into his subconscious and we talk about it all the time. So no, I do think it's, I think it's an important rule of life for everybody, but like the radical honesty, if, you know, I'm scared to be radically honest. So from now on, I should just go around telling everyone what I think. Well, it's like, well, yeah, just because you're scared to do it doesn't mean, right. Like it may be good for you, but it doesn't mean it's good for others. So part of embracing fear, look, I, I have a 16-year-old daughter now, and we're, we're heading into this, you know, high school, college uh, sort of whole, whole thing. And I know there's a lot of different perspectives. But what, what there seems to be now of, a, of the societal and the parenting philosophy and everything is getting everything right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Mm. Get, getting, I mean, part of it, you got to get it wrong, right? The, the red ink, the wrong class, the wrong track. Right. I don't know how you embrace fear if, if failure is, is looked upon, you know, so negatively when the stakes are low. <laughs> and, and that's what, you know, these, when you're 15 or 16, right, the stakes of failure are low. But, but I think, you know, what we're teaching people is you got to get it all right. And I think that flies in the face mm. of that advice, which I agree with. Hmm. I think making mistakes is like the fountain of youth. <laughs> you know, there's often this question people ask you, like, what would you tell your 20-year-old self now? Or the variation on it is like, basically, what past mistakes do right. you wish you would have avoided? And of course, every time I come back to that question, I think about it again, and I think, okay, well, let me think about that again. My answer is the same every time, which is like, nothing. I I like all of my past mistakes. Right. I had to make my past mistakes in order to learn. Like for most of us, that's how we learn. People can tell you things. Right. You can read articles or hear tips or have somebody wag a finger and tell you something. But most of us are going to have to learn everything the hard way. You don't really learn until you feel the pain. Right? You have to feel the pain to know something is a mistake. That's another reason why when I do make a mistake and my friends try to do the nice thing that friends do, which is tell me like, oh, you know, it's for the best. Don't worry about it. I'm like, no, I need to feel the pain of this. Like, don't, it's not for the best. Like, that was, that was a huge damn mistake. I need this to hurt in order right. to remember. I really want to make sure that doesn't happen. T touch the hot pot. It's hot, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, exactly. But yeah, the, this rule of thumb of whatever scares you, go do it. I like applying it to even the tiniest little day-to-day -day moments. You know, you're, you're scared to talk to that intimidatingly beautiful person. And 
as soon as you notice you're scared, oh, that means you should do it. Or you're scared to quit your job, you should do it. You're scared to start this new thing, you should do it. It's like from the tiniest thing to the biggest thing, I like applying that same rule. So you appear to embrace essentialism and even minimalism in your life in terms of figuring out what's important and what's not. I always joke, like I read something or listen to it when three or four people in my life from different constructs say, you got to listen to this. And I think it was three or four years ago when, when everyone's like, you got to listen to the Derek Sivers, Tim Ferriss interview and the hell yeah or no. <laughs> and and, and it, it literally like four people and I was like, oh, I got to listen to this. And I, and I went and listened to it and it was incredible you know, profound. So I, you have strong opinions on this. And I know you, this was like a working philosophy that you developed, but I'd love for you to kind of share how you came to it and, and the thinking and, and just describe a little bit like what happens when we say yes to something we don't want to. Because I think so many people are suffering on, on just their plates collapsing with commitments. And I've used this, we started using it as a hiring test. I mean, it's just such a great thing. So, so dive into that a little bit because I, I think you can help a lot of people with this. With it. This is a philosophy everyone should use. Thank you. Well, it is for a specific situation though. Okay, first let me just say what this is. So, hell yeah or no is it's a decision-making tool you can use that the idea is if you're feeling anything less than oh, hell yeah, that would be amazing then just say no. And the idea is to say no to almost everything so that you leave space in your life. And that's the real key, is I think that most of us say a lukewarm yes to too many things. And so our time is full. Like we're just too busy. And so when something great does come up, you don't have the space in your life. You don't have the time to give it the hell yeah attention it deserves because you've said yes to too many half-assed things. Where instead, if you imagine an alternate version of yourself where you actually had like hours a day of spare time because you've said no to almost everything and your schedule is almost empty. And then when the occasional big deal comes along, you say, okay, fuck yeah. <laughs> this is worth throwing myself into. And then now you have the capacity, you have the time, you have the energy to knock it out of the ballpark, as they say, right? Because you, you've said no to everything else except the occasional big thing. So what are the whys? I assume we're, are we afraid to be not busy? Are we afraid to let people down? Are we afraid to put ourselves first? What are the, what are the big reasons why? Sounds simple, right? But what, right. why don't we do that? I mean, there's the obvious, the fear of missing out, right? We think of the any benefit. Oh, you had Cal Newport on your show a few weeks ago. The any benefit model. I love when Cal Newport talks about the any benefit idea when people say, well, I would need to do this social media account because it has some benefits. He's yeah. like, yeah, you, you don't say yes to something just because it has any benefit. You have to think of all the downsides. So to me, that's like the, the hell yeah or no thing. It's like we say yes to something because we think, well, it has some benefit. I mean, I should go to this event. I might meet somebody good there. So I probably should do it. It could have some benefit, but no, it's, it's going to have the downside of filling up your time. And you don't, I, I aim to not have my time filled up. I'd love to keep my time incredibly empty so that 
yeah, when that occasional great thing comes along, you can do it. So yeah, I think it's usually fear of missing out. And yeah, probably just a cultural norm that we're in, in our culture where we think we're just supposed to be busy all the time doing something. I'm sure there's a, another culture somewhere else in the south of France or something like that where most people do nothing most of the time and they'd be laughing at this conversation of ours. Who knows? Well, how do you think of, well, two things in that. I think one, what you said is that you actually have to let that free time and feel like you're not wasting time because you don't know when the good thing's going to come along. So you need that empty gas tank, which people have struggled with. But how do people, how do you encourage them to think about R&D, right? In terms of, I would say there's a small percentage of the things where, you know, for people who say no all the time, they're probably shutting down a lot of new things. But I think they all think about, how do I know that this might have the potential to be great, even if it's, I'm not sure, right? I think all companies Uh, have that sort of 10%. There's some things that you got to take the chance on, right? Or you would sort of close down your world, I think, into the realm of the known versus the unknown. Right. Great point. You were the, I've never heard somebody bring this up before. I'm so glad you did. The hell yeah or no thing. At the very beginning, you said, this is something everybody should use. And I went, eh, 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 <laughs> because I get a lot of emails from uh, like college students that are like just out of college. And they're just like, hey, man, I heard you talk about hell yeah or no. This is great. I'm going to apply it to everything now. Yeah. And I'm like, wait, no, you're just out of college. Like, and, and if you're unemployed and whatever, you probably should say yes to a lot of things. Right. Just say yes to everything. Like, no, no, no. This hell yeah or no is a specific tool for managing overwhelm. If you're overwhelmed with opportunity, then you need this. But if you're starving for opportunity, well, then no, don't use this tool. It's a tool to keep you from drowning. It's a tool for being overwhelmed. Um, So I do think it's like in the early part of your career, you should say yes to everything. Like you just said, you never know what might hit. It's like, like, they're like lottery tickets, right? Like the more you buy, the better. Right. As long as they're free. Um, But get them all. Say yes to everything. Find what you love and let it kill you, right? Like just work harder, sleep less, do it all, say yes to everything. But then when something hits, when you're onto a success and the world is giving you some kind of feedback, like this is worth doing. That's when you switch strategies. And now you have to say no to everything else and like totally double, triple, quadruple down on that one thing. And the, these are the situations where, you know, if you're already overwhelmed in opportunities that you need to say no to most of them and yes to just a few. Although it's funny, you know, so that said, I remember, um, what's his name? Charlie Munger, yeah. Warren Buffett's partner. Brilliant. In an interview once with his advice to young investors, he said, imagine you've got one of those little loyalty punch cards, you know, like you might get from the ice cream shop where they, it's yeah. only got 10 holes in it and they can only punch 10 holes in that card. He said, imagine this is your entire investment career and you can only make 10 investments for your whole life. He said, you might actually be better off just sitting and doing nothing for a few years and waiting until that one comes along that you can tell is just going to be a home run. And then you take a swing. And you let all the others just pass by until you could tell it's going to be a hit. And that was like, that was one of his main bits of advice to an audience about investing. As much as that guy knows, he felt that this is one of the most crucial things to advise. They, they play in decades. I mean, they'll, they'll, I'm sure right. they're busy this week, but they'll sit out for 10 years if they don't think there's right. 
there's something that's a fit. My, my favorite Charlie Munger quote that I actually use all the time in every circumstance is he, he said, show me the incentive and I'll tell you the behavior. Yes. I think about that <laughs> all the time. I love that. When people in an organization are like, I can't get people to stop doing this. Like, well, <laughs> what's the incentive that you have going? And then pretty soon it tells that. So in terms of creating this space, the other thing that, that really needs to be done is for people to stop thinking about maximizing you know, every second, whether it's, you know, answering the emails, optimizing their day, productivity. I, you just have a different philosophy on this about like productive is, is creating your space. Productive is not filling your, your calendar, right? Right. I, I figured out that you'll run out of days before <laughs> you run out of emails. And that's like a scary thought. Like, yeah, you know, the day that you die, the emails are going to keep pouring into your inbox from people. Like, this will never, ever, ever stop. It's so to think that you can just get on top of it is the wrong idea. And so I think, imagine that you're an author who gets famous. Or even worse, imagine that you win the Nobel Prize for something. That would be the worst thing that could happen, because now you're going to get invited to everything. You're going to get glamorous invitations that nobody can refuse. Everybody's going to want a piece of you. Or even worse, they're just going to want to say thank you, to express their gratitude. Who could refuse that? But if you say yes to these things, if you say yes to the people that just want to thank you or whatever, you'll never write another book. So I think this is short-term thinking versus long-term thinking. So in the short term, you may have to disappoint people in order to serve them better in the long term. So someone whose time is under request and, and, and you who says no to 98% of the things, it is impossible, I think, for people to understand that or explain that to the person, right? I've even written some articles that were pretty broad and helped a lot of people, I think. And then people call and wanted to, or reach out and want to discuss the implications of that post. And I'm thinking, right. like, I, I wrote this so that it could reach 100,000 people. I can't talk to <laughs> 500 people about it, which is why it, it's just, right. I, I think that thing you said that in order to help them the most, you need to not, it, it's a very hard thing to, to try to explain without sounding selfish or self-important. Yeah. So what are the benefits of being a slow thinker and a slow processor? Because I think we, we probably tend to reward unintentionally these days, like people who process quickly and think quickly. Hmm. I see it as my job. There are other people whose job is to be a manager, to stay on top of things, or to say like customer service their job would be to respond instantly. Well, you know, there are many jobs in the world where the way that you excel at this is to respond instantly. The faster you respond, the better. And that's true. But for me, I think that I'm happier or happiest actually finding a different point of view. And that usually doesn't come to us first. Right? Like, you know, somebody says, name a famous painting. You say the Mona Lisa. <laughs> um, <laughs> The first thing that comes to mind, name a famous entrepreneur, Richard Branson. You say the first thing that comes to mind, that's, that's not interesting. That's just the first thing. But then if you were to ask again and say, no, 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 besides that one, name another one. You'd say, okay, what's besides the Mona Lisa? What's another famous painting? Okay, now what, what's another one? Like you get onto the third or fourth one. And now you're getting somewhere more interesting because you're, you're not doing the knee-jerk reaction anymore. I also realized that most of my 
quick answers were outdated. I had answered that question long ago in the past and then held on to that answer. And now I just recite it like a reflex. Sometimes I would hear myself saying something out loud as an answer to a question. Then I'd realize after hearing myself say it that it's not true anymore. So I think being a slow thinker and just embracing that has all these benefits where just it leads you to come up with the more interesting ideas because you're not trying to be fast. Uh, yeah. And, and like I said, it just it depends on what's being valued, right? I think in some cases, someone might be looking for the quickest answer, but it's not the best answer. <laughs> but that's the game that's being played. Yeah. I got an email from somebody in India who read my article about being a slow thinker. And he said, I do software sales here in India. My clients are asking me questions about the software. I have to give them an answer right away. What should I do? And I said, no, you don't have to give them an answer right away. In fact, if you always give them the answer right away, I think they'd be right to assume that you might be full of shit. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas if you say instead, like if they say, well, how many clients can that handle? And you go, hmm, you know what? I will go find out for you. I'll find out the real answer of exactly what it can handle and I will get back to you tomorrow. And then you go find out the answer from your dev team or whatever it may be. Like, I think that would actually be impressive to a customer to see that you're, you're taking their question seriously and you're going to take the time to find the real answer. Yeah, it's so funny. We, we actually almost, part of my training, communication training uh, at our company involves an example like that where someone who is a slow thinker and careful, uh, uh, teaching them on a client call to not pause for 20 seconds and not answer because that gets their credibility, but answer quickly and say, that is an interesting question. Let me look into that. Um, I want to get back to you with a better answer. Yeah. So that the awkward silence <laughs> doesn't hang there forever, but they, and they aren't punished by that, but they, you know, answer with confidence, but not rush to a decision. So that's interesting. Yeah. So this is one I've, I've been uh, excited to talk to you about. I, I actually think there's a clear distinction between success and achievement. When we talk about success, I think that tends to be where you get things or accomplish things that are impressive to others. Maybe the huge house, the great job, the sports car, I think achievements when you accomplish things that you've identified are really important to you and, and, and you've intentionally you know, sought to get them. What, what do you think about that? And how do you make sure you're achieving things or have you that, that matter to you and not matter to other people in your career? <laughs> I'm testing a new technique for this, <laughs> which is don't let anyone see your life. Stop taking pictures. Yeah. Ask yourself if you would still want to go to that exotic location or eat at that famous restaurant if you never took a photo and never told anyone about it. So I think we're all susceptible to this. And I don't just mean in the shallow Instagram right. way. I mean, like, there are so many things that I find myself wanting, like even wanting to write a song or wanting to start a new company, that later I realize I just like the image it portrays more than I actually want the actual process, right? So last year, there was this couple uh, that was thinking of traveling the world for a year. And I guess because they knew that I've traveled a lot, they emailed me to ask my advice. They said, yeah, we're thinking of traveling the whole world for a year. What, what are your thoughts on this? Any advice? So my advice was, yeah, don't bring a camera. 
and don't tell anyone but your parents where you are. And that'll help you to know if you actually really want to travel the world for its own sake, or you just like the way it sounds, the way it looks. Like you want the glamour of saying, we're traveling the world. Or do you really want the day-to-day slog? If no one was witnessing it, would you still want it? So yeah, um, you know, the, the huge house, the great job, the sports car, like it's kind of assumed in the question you're going to show these things to others and almost that's where the satisfaction comes. It's from the, the social acknowledgement of this. Or, or that that's how others, I think that's how others judge success versus saying, oh, Derek is like holed up in a cabin writing in New Hampshire and he's like really happy, right? Like he, right. <laughs> he actually had to sell the house, the job and get rid of it to do what actually makes him really happy. But no one's talking about Derek in his cabin, right? Because somehow right. they can't judge that <laughs> as, right. as achievement from the outside. Although, mm, maybe it's just, it's less, um, it doesn't have gold stars all over it, but I gotta say, I've been living this way for a long time. Um, when I went back to my high school reunion, 10 years later, I'm back to Hinsdale, Illinois, high school reunion and everybody else were these like fat well-paid mid-level managers at Motorola or whatever and I was just a musician like a full-time musician I was traveling with the circus still and I'm sure I probably had like ten thousand dollars in the bank tops but they were all jealous of me Hmm. because like everybody that I talked to there like said man you know I wish I had done that like now I got a boss and I got to do this thing I got to wear this suit and got to you know so I think that, yeah, there's the one that has the gold stars over it that's almost the, the cliche stereotype of what success looks like. But I think most people, if said, you know, you can either have money or fame or that or that or that or freedom, almost everybody, I think, wants the freedom choice. That's like what it really comes down to. I don't know if you've seen it. I can send it to you. But Ryan Holiday wrote a great piece last week on sort of happiness. And he, he talks about how when you achieve something, you'll automatically move the goalpost on yourself. <laughs> so you'll never mm-hmm. really, really enjoy it. But he talked about, it, he said, look, when I didn't have money and didn't have all these things, people told me that these things wouldn't make me happy. And I, and I didn't believe them, but now I understand it. And he talks about, you know, he had written five books, none had made the New York bestseller. And he talked about his new book and was number one. And he, you know, he looked at his cell phone when he, he got the notice and he was mowing his lawn and he had the number one New York Times bestseller. <laughs> and he was like, this is the thing kind of he's wanted and he was just kind of like, okay, I did it. Like it didn't, he's like, it never provides that, you know, I, we're just conditioned to move the goalposts so that it just doesn't, it doesn't often just provide that euphoric sort of, you know, happiness that you, you think it's going to be provide when you, when you create this vision of this achievement that you want to accomplish. Right. And most of us will actually go beyond that and do things we thought we wanted in theory and have to learn the hard way that we don't want that you know like i actually just rewatched the movie american beauty yeah kevin spacey and Benning, and i just saw it a couple days ago and yet they're living in this like far too big house for just the three of them it's like this big three-story house and it's just filled with furniture and junk and i just like my first thought when seeing that is like oh god that looks awful like i think i've already found out the hard way i don't like living in a big house with a lot of furniture because then it's just it's just stuff and then you're not as mobile and i just what else? I think sometimes we make these purchases. Like somebody might 
earn a lot of money for the first time and then they go out and spend a lot of it on a really nice car. It's like, okay, well, vroom, vroom. You got a nice car sitting at the same stoplight with everybody else and, and you have it for a while and then you have to learn the hard way that you don't want it. I'm, I'm quite a minimalist now, but I didn't used to be. I had a lot of stuff um, when I was, I don't know, in my late 20s. And, but it was because I kept moving from place to place. And every time I would move, I'd pack up all that stuff again and then move to the new place and I'd unpack all that stuff and I'd move again. So I'd pack it all up and unpack it. And it was after about three or four of those moves, I went, man, yeah, having I don't stuff, want stuff really sucks. <laughs> yeah. I, I had to learn the hard way. Like you can tell somebody the benefits of minimalism, but again, it's like, like I said earlier, like we all have to feel the pain. We have to learn the hard way. But if you didn't have to learn the hard way, like, so one of the things I've heard is, I guess it's a means versus ends, is that, you know, really great people, whether musicians or athletes, or they, they love the practice, right? So they love the practice so that that's part of the enjoyment to them. I, I always think about an Olympic athlete, right? Where imagine where you work all those mornings, all of that stuff, you're, you're 17 years old, you go for the gold, and then one of two things happens. You, you don't get the medal, <laughs> and therefore you know, kind of all for naught, or you do get the medal and it's a great plateau. And then, you know, there's not really much that, that comes after that. So if it was all about the ends, I think you'd be really not satisfied either way versus if you enjoyed the means, maybe then there, there was ride in the whole, there was value in the whole ride for you. Right. I think we all have this. I think there's some things we do just for the goal. We're not in it for the process. We just want the end result. Right. Are those the most dangerous? I don't know. Well, I mean, it's, I was going, <laughs> actually, right before I opened my mouth, what I was about to say is that I think this might be some inherent personality trait. Like some people are introverts, some people are extroverts, some people are goal-driven, some people are process-driven. Right. So if you don't mind, indulge me in a little personal example for a second. Is that, um, as a musician, I have this story on my website that you might like. It's sivers.org slash 15 years. And it's my story of how it took me 15 years to become a good singer. Every single day for 15 years, I practiced singing for at least an hour a day. And I sucked. <laughs> I was a terrible singer. And all along the way, I met so many people that would say, dude, just hire a singer. Like, you're just not a singer. You're writing these great songs. You can play guitar like a motherfucker. Like, hire a singer, you know? Be Eddie Van Halen. You're just, yeah. <laughs> quit trying to be David Lee Roth. And I'd say, no, I'm in it for the process. I want to learn to be a great singer. And I don't care if I suck for decades along the way. I'm doing this for the process. Like, just hiring a singer to just have somebody sing my songs and put out a record, that's a goal that's somebody with a goal-oriented mindset. Like, right. just get the goal. Just go hire, just pay somebody, then you'll have your goal achieved. I think, no, I'm in it for the process. And I'm so glad I did. But I think that's, that's really a personality trait of mine, that I do that with so many things. I've actually started a few different quote-unquote companies that were actually like things where I developed something 90% of the way. Like I actually spent the months or sometimes even a couple of years in development. And then right before launching, I went, eh. I enjoyed the process and I don't know, maybe I don't think the world actually needs this. And so I just don't launch. Like I'll go almost to the end and maybe it's fear, but I think it's actually more the same thing we're talking about that. I think I, 
I'm just a very process driven person and I don't care about the goal. Oh, oh, some, a, a sailor on the beach in Spain last week <laughs> told me the story. I haven't looked this up yet, but he said, when you get back to the computer, you have to look this up. I forgot about it until right now. We were talking about this process versus goal driven thing. And he said, uh, you're going to like the story of, uh, you know, this, uh, he said some French name and he said, it was the, the race around the world in a single boat. And, and it was something that few people in the world have ever achieved. And there was this big race and this man was set to be the winner. He was the leader in the race and he was almost to the finish line. But instead of crossing the finish line, he turned sideways and he decided he would rather just keep sailing. <laughs> he purposely didn't get the gold, didn't cross the goal because he realized he didn't want to stop. He just wanted to keep sailing. And I was like, ooh, I can relate to that. I like that idea of like, no, I was in it for the process, not the goal. It's interesting, right? I, but it also sounds like you, you have learned not to fall victim to the, the sunk cost bias. Oh, not at all. No, I think maybe thanks to the people who have made us very aware of all these cognitive biases, I, I'm glad that someone gave that one a catchy name because I think about that often when I'm doing things like, oh man, so many times I've like, <laughs> I'll use the TED conference as an example. You know, the TED conference costs, I think, $7,500 to attend. Hmm. And 10 years ago, I, I paid it a couple times and I attended a couple times and I really enjoyed it. And then I had a kid and I didn't go for six years. And then a couple of years ago, I thought, you know, I think I'd really like to go to TED again. But you have to register like 11 months in advance, right? They sell out like 10 months in advance. So, so I paid my 7,500 bucks. And then it came time to like literally like the day before I'm supposed to get on the plane and go. And now it's 11 months later. And I'm like, eh, I don't want to go. <laughs> I'm just, I'm doing some good stuff. I'm writing some stuff right now. I don't feel like schmoozing for three days and listening to other people talk. I'm on a good roll with my writing right now. And I've blown it off, even though I spent 7,500 on the, the ticket and I've already spent whatever, 2,000 on the flight and hotels. I'm like, damn, that's hard to walk away from. But you know what? That money was already spent 11 months ago. That's just the sunk cost fallacy, isn't it? That, I mean, that's a quintessential hell yeah or no, right? You decided, yeah, yeah don't really want to uh, do that. <laughs> don't really want, and the thing I'm, almost embarrassed about is I actually did that two damn years in a row. The next year I was like, yeah, this year I'm going to go to Ted. And then like, once again, 11 months later, I was like, damn, I still don't want to go. <laughs> so now I'm no longer handing uh, 7,500 bucks to Ted for no reason. It's nice to know that, you know, half of it goes to charity, but, but I'm not doing that again. You know, you highlight something I've noticed. I, I've I've thought about writing about this, but I just haven't totally formulated my opinion on this. But it's the difference between services and goods and our regret factor, right? So we have a dinner or we go on a vacation or it's sort of below our expectations and, and it was $100 or $1,000 and it's sort of done. But when we buy something and it sits there, mm. <laughs> it bothers us. It's not any more money and it serves as this like, we just can't walk away from it or just donate it or just get, get rid of it. It is something about the sunk cost in this physical realm versus, again, if you go spend $200 on a dinner and you don't like the dinner, you didn't love it, you just go, I'm not going to go back to that restaurant, right? But you buy the $150 sweater and it's in your closet and you don't wear it and it bothers you <laughs> for, and you don't know what to do with it. Right. Okay. So I'd, I'd argue in that case that the dinner is already done. Yeah. 
that's a done transaction. The money's gone. When the food's gone, you pay the bill. The thing with the sweater you're talking about, that's like the story of people who bought, who do stock trading and they bought a stock that tanked and they don't want to sell it because selling it is like an admission of failure. Right. So getting rid of the sweater that you, you thought you would wear, but you just never wear, if you keep it, well, now it's still in your optimistic mind has potential. You might still wear that someday. And when you get rid of it, whether selling it or just handing it to Goodwill or whatever, that that's the admission that, no, that was just a dumb thing I shouldn't have done. But instead of the admission, shouldn't that be the freeing? I actually think the, oh, yeah. the pain is it's sitting there, not just, <laughs> it's not the money, right? It's what it represents. Oh, dude, I, you're yeah. <laughs> a, a month ago, I just did something really profound for me. I gave away all my musical instruments. Wow. They were sitting there staring at me every day, my two guitars and my yeah. keyboard and my two studio monitors and my even my like recording studio software. Every single day, I was sitting here working on my book and programming it, doing stuff I loved. And every single day, I'm looking at those instruments like, ah, yeah. I really should put aside time to practice. Yeah. So yeah, I um, well, I guess it's been a, few, a couple months ago now. I gave them to a good friend who is a full-time professional musician. Actually, I just called him up asking who I should give them to. I was like, do you know anybody that could use it? Oh my God, dude, your guitar? You're thinking of giving away your guitar? Oh my God, I want your guitar. I love your guitar. I was like, all right. And so I gave him everything. And that dude uses it every single day. And is so thankful and is so happy to have it. So yeah, that just felt totally congruently the right thing to do. And I'm so glad that I'm not looking at that stuff, feeling guilty every day. And this is where we just get in our own way. I, I always found it was amazing to me in, in after sort of the 2009 recession in the housing, you'd have people like, let's say, trying to buy a new house and, and buy my house. And, you know, they, they're offering me below market because, you know, it's after a collapse. But then they want a contingency that they will not sit, both sell their place for you know, a dollar less than they bought it for because <laughs> of the sunk cost fallacy. So they're actually rationalizing this in two different ways. Like, hey, I'm going to pay you less because <laughs> the market's down, but like, I'm not selling my house for a dollar less than it was <laughs> before the height. Even though if you actually understand personal finance and economics, you'd be better off trading up at a big discount, you know, letting go of the $10 you lost because you're going to buy $20 that's now $14. It was always amazing to me that people were, and we're, I'm just not selling this house for a dollar more than, and, and they're just hurting themselves. Yeah. Wow. So spinning this a different direction, you know, we've talked about some philosophies, a lot of your thinking and ideas. I think in general, I've heard you describe many of your ideas and arguments as being counter melody, which is a nice, I like that term. It's nice. <laughs> uh, to the general consensus. Uh, so what's the chicken and egg here? Do you challenge yourself to see the opposite side of a consensus issue or is it just come naturally to you become a contrarian or do you think it's important that we, you know, that, that whatever everyone else is doing, it's the opposite. So what, why is taking that perspective important to you? Hmm. Well, a little bit, I do it just for my own sake. Like I like the personal challenge of finding a different perspective. It's like, well, here's the conventional wisdom on that thing. What's another way of looking at it? But mostly I think it's more useful to others, right? Like if I came on this interview and I just gave you some regular standard conventional wisdom answers, well, then this would be a waste of time for people to listen to. You know, they would just be background noise, but 
they wouldn't hear anything new or surprising, right? Like I yeah. have this theory that we we're only really learning when we're surprised. If something doesn't surprise us, well, that means it's just fitting in with what we know already. It just fits in with our view of the world, and we didn't actually change any brain cells. We might have added some information, but didn't actually learn anything. So when I accepted your invitation to come on the show, I think it became my job to help find a different, surprising, unexpected perspective to anything you're going to ask me. Like that's yeah. now my job as the guest. It's a good job. People, <laughs> people only really learn when they're surprised. So people listen to an interview like this because they want some new ideas. They're not looking to just be you know, reinforced to what right. they already know. They want an eyebrow to go up. And so I, I think of it as my, my job out there in the world as a public writer, thinker, speaker, dude at large. And how do you think about that in the context now today, particularly the U.S. And, and politics, where everyone is really entrenched in their side. And they have a hard time. I think more than ever, I don't think people can even understand anyone else's perspective because there's painting everything on both sides with, with one color. So what, what are we just not learning anymore? Or, or how, do we, how do we get ourselves out of this sort of uh, retrenchment into what we know and what's safe and, and, and sort of the divisiveness of thinking? Mm, man, that's a big <laughs> question. Um, I suspect that some people are just, um, they're not going to change their foundational things. Yeah. Like, no, damn it. This is who I am. This is what I'm all about. So it's, I would say, like for me at least, like, I'm not even going to go there. I'm not even going to touch that stuff. I will not talk politics. I'm not going to, uh, in general, I don't even want to debate. I'm not going to try to argue somebody out of their point of view you know nobody's going to do this you know humble head hung down like i was wrong i was so wrong no that doesn't right. happen yeah. instead i think of these little tiny ways like things that are are um that we're not using to prop up our identity on right like right. you know we talked earlier about hell yeah or no here's another way to think about being busy here's another way to look at fear Here's another way to look at radical honesty. Here's another way to look. It's like, let's talk about these things that are not button pushers, that don't get people all riled up and, you know, get their blood pressure rising and steaming and getting into arguments about. Um, I like the more subversive things instead. But, but when I believe that someone is totally irrational, <laughs> I want to understand why, even if you're trying to make your own case, rather than dismissing them, I actually think it's important to try to understand what it is about it that they're focused on or, or riled up or other. I mean, that's kind of the learning. I think we're, we, we tend to be dismissive rather than, you know, if you and I are totally opposite on this, like me just saying, well, I, help me explain, explain to me why your opinion on this and just really listen so I can understand it. I mean, it's in my interest to do that rather than to block it all out. Right. Well, you're, you know, you're Bob Glazer. You, you just said, I am interested in understanding the other point of view. Like, that's coming from a place of security. Like, you're feeling pretty okay in the world. You're doing all right. The world's not freaking you out too much. Like, you're not terrified. I think somebody else, there are times, and I won't even say there are some people who, because they're not even just, it's not like a, a personality characteristics. Sometimes there are times in our life 
which might even be most of our life, where we don't want to have our mind changed. Like, no, I, I'm just holding on here. I'm barely hanging on. This is all I can do. I don't want my mind changed on this thing, damn it. I'm just trying to make it right. through the day. You know, so I think a lot of people like, yeah, they don't want to have their mind changed on something. They're not open. They're not open to it at all. You started out the question by saying, I would love to understand the other point of view, right? So anybody who says that, then... But it could be in a selfish way. Let's say I'm in charge of the purple party, right? And we're going against the green party. People in the green party hate the candidate from the purple party. If I'm in charge of... I, I would actually want to understand exactly why they hated that candidate because yeah. I could use that to my advantage, right? It's yeah. even like, it, not even if I mean, say, I don't even want to understand. I want to understand. I want to understand to get smarter about my own platform rather than just shutting it down. You know, right. you know, 10 years ago, I moved to Singapore and I became a permanent resident of Singapore. And the first year I lived there, it's fascinating I place. thought, yeah. <laughs> the first year I lived there, I thought everybody was wrong. Um, <laughs> all of these universities were in, uh, inviting me to speak, and I'd speak to a lot of business school classes. And there was this funny moment one time when uh, it was called Singapore Management University, SMU, asked me to speak to the entrepreneurship class. But then, wait, hold on. I don't necessarily know it was the entrepreneurship class. It, but whatever. It was a business class. And they said, so I started out by saying, how many people here want to start their own business? Like, this is my very first question. And I'm like, raise your hand if you want to start your own business. And at a class of 60 kids, like one hand slowly right. and reluctantly went up. I was like, what the hell? I was, like, I was so confused, right? If you ask that question in California, like 61 hands will go up, right? Like somebody will run in from the hallway to raise their hand. Like everybody wants to start their own business in California. Yeah, it's so interesting. What the hell is going on here? And so I. I thought, okay, wait, maybe they're just being shy. So I picked out specific people. I was like, you, why don't you want to start your own business? And he was like, I've spent a lot of money on this school. I can't take the risk. I was like, no. I said, you, why don't you want to start your own business? He said, my parents are shop owners. Like They worked hard so that I don't have to be a shop owner. I want to get a steady job. And at the time, I was like, no, you're all wrong. You're doing life wrong. No, you have to dig. And it took me a good year of living in Singapore, having lots of Singaporean friends. So, I mean, it's still, to me, they're, you know, New Zealand is my getaway place where I'm antisocial, but Singapore is my super social place. It's still the place in the world where I have the most friends now. I lived there for two and a half years. And my best friends still live there. And I got to know them very well. And it took about a year and a half before I finally understood the Singaporean mindset of this, like, it's kind of Confucianism. It's kind of very, like, top-down and doing your own personal desires are whimsical and not important. You do what's best for the group. I, I felt that was incredibly wrong and against everything I believed for a long time until I got it. And this is where travel is critical. I, I yeah. just, I've learned. So one of my Friday Fords I wrote a few weeks ago was on tipping and about how Danny Meyer and some people in the U.S. are, are really working to eliminate tipping at restaurants and, and include it and, and just, you know, some thoughts around that. And there's some clear data around prejudice and tipping and all kinds of stuff. And it just, it's very arbitrary as to where it exists and where it doesn't exist. Like you don't, pay someone, someone said, you don't 
tip the nurse at the hospital, you know, who works for you and you don't tip the barista, but you tip the bartender to get, to get your beer. And, you know, I got some long responses from people in the industry who were like, it just, it has to exist for these reasons. And, and I, I, I get a lot of people, have, you know, built their careers or, or, or waiter or waitress in college and, and got by on that. But, you know, my, one of the things I say is you got, but you got on and they're like, you wouldn't have good service. You wouldn't have this. And I was like, I've heard all these articles, but you understand that nowhere in the rest of the world does tipping exist like it does in the U S and they have pretty good right. restaurants in France and <laughs> Europe and <Yeah>. London and, <laughs> and Asia. So like, we're just so the more they were in the industry, the more I got like a five page email about why this could never happen. Now I understand a lot of the system is all set up and the pay and everything to force it to be that way. But it actually has been traveling to the rest of the world. I remember once, I think I was in a bar in Ireland and I was like, do I leave him a tip? And someone said, he'd be insulted if you left him a tip. You know, that's his job and he's paid to do that. And he's, uh, you know, a bartender. So it was one of those issues so interesting to me because I, I've traveling the world and hearing other people's perceptions on, on right. being in the US, but people that are deep in the industry here can't fathom that it could be a different way. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I mean, it's... Japan is great for that. In Japan, almost everything is opposite. Right. I loved the moment where I asked a Russian guy why Russians don't smile. And he looked at me with a frown. He said, oh, man. He said, smiling is rude. He said, <laughs> you smile at somebody, it's like saying, fuck you. My life is awesome. Yours is bad. It's, 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 if somebody smiles, they're trying to be superior. He said, either that or they're just showing themselves to be a fool. Because what kind of fool would smile at this world we're in? <laughs> I was like, so yeah. He said, no, 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 no. It's smiling is rude. <laughs> I'm like, I love this. This yeah. Just seeing, see, these are the kind of things, right? Like, no, nobody's going to flip us from you know liberal to conservative or whatever. But yeah, you can see and you can start to understand another point of view on on smiling or on tipping or on this. It's just, it's fun yeah. to see things from this opposite point of view. I'm going to butcher this quote and I don't know who said it, but there's something about the definition of a first rate mind is the ability to hold two contrary opinions or something like that. I right. have to look that up. Yeah. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your, your creative process. Obviously, you know, musician, entrepreneur, writing, you're someone who's extremely creative. How does your process work? Do you, do you seek out new ideas about things to write about? Do things catch your interest? Do you set up your schedule to be creative? I know, I know you talked a lot about daydreaming and, and how that's a big thing for you in terms of process. I'd love to understand how your, how your mind and your schedule works around all of this. I don't have much to say about this because I'm not very deliberate or structured about it. Um, I do keep an open email inbox. It's something I really enjoy. I'm actually, you know, at the end of this conversation, I'm going to ask the listeners here to send me an email and introduce themselves. And part of the reason I like that is I really like hearing from people around the world and hearing what they're doing and hearing what they're struggling with. It inspires me. I, I like thinking about all these questions people ask me. So yeah, I like hearing about other people's problems. I especially love noticing where I disagree with the assumptions that we have. Mm -hmm. Like, well, of course you have to stay busy, or of course you have to keep moving forward at all times, or of course this, or of course that. You have to tip, yeah. It's fun, yeah, you have to tip. And it's fun to 
to add a question mark at the end of, you know, replace the, the, the period with the question mark. So instead of saying, right, well, you have to keep moving forward, it's going to becomes, you have to keep moving forward. <laughs> and I do a lot of journaling. I, I sometimes, I write for, I'd say, between one to three hours a day wow. in my journal, just privately, just asking myself questions. And then, most importantly, questioning my answers. So first I ask myself a question, then I answer it, but then I start questioning my answers. Like I, I doubt myself. I, I, I just assume that I'm full of shit too, that anything I'm saying <laughs> is just some old outdated belief that it's time to expire or at least you know, beat it up a bit and see how robust it still is. And I think all of this is probably driven by the fact that I think, to me, one of the greatest joys in life, better than chocolate, better than sex, better than, you know, good James Brown song, <laughs> is, is changing your mind about something. It is such a deep, deep joy to have your mind changed about something and suddenly see something important or big from a new point of view that you couldn't have imagined yesterday. I love that. It's just one of the happiest things in my life. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm seeking those. I, I love, I mean, to me, that's why I like living around the world. Um, that's why yeah. I moved to Singapore. It's why I moved here. It's why I'm living in Europe now. It's like, where are you now? I was going to ask you that. Well, right now I'm in Oxford, England. That's a good thinking place. Yeah. They, they, they know a thing or two about thinking, but it's <laughs> it, even, um, this was a, a compromise with my, uh, my kid's mom is she wanted to live in New York city where her parents are. I wanted to live somewhere exotic and interesting. And so we compromised and agreed on England where she's just a few hours from her parents in New York. And I'm just a few hours from somewhere exotic and interesting. <laughs> so uh, I go to Heathrow airport every week or two, but um, yeah, I'm just constantly pursuing understanding a different point of view. I mean, that's what I love about you know, a place like Japan or even you know, something like Finland. Like you read a book about the culture of Finland and you understand the Finnish attitude towards silence or yeah. communication or whatever. It's, it's, just, it's wonderful to take these everyday things. Like you said that, or did you say that tipping was considered rude, right? In Ireland, like, no, not only do you not have to, that would be insulting. Right. Are you saying I'm not doing my job well or I'm not paid enough? Right. It's a totally different perspective. Right. Yeah. Are you saying I look like a homeless person that needs the money? How dare you? Right. Yeah. There are places in, in the U.S. where if you did that, someone would have that reaction just because they're not used to it. Right. right. It, it, to the doctor. What if you give the doctor 10 bucks after the, <laughs> you know, at, <laughs> or you the nurse? Five after yeah. Surgery. After five and say, thank you. You know, <laughs> That's I don't think example. people think through those cultural implications. They just think, oh, it's just normal here and it's not normal right. here. Yeah. So to answer your question, I don't have a process. No, I'm not like a daily ritual kind of guy, but it is a constant ongoing life pursuit for me. But you have sort of structured daydreaming, right? More like the journaling kind of stuff I describe, where I'll quite often just lay down on the couch and just do nothing, no phone, no whatever, just sit there and just space out and think. And I usually end up bouncing up, uh, you know, within minutes uh, or half an hour or something, I end up bouncing up with an idea that I wouldn't have ever thought of if I didn't just lay down on the couch. But yeah, the, my 
my journal, my just kind of, I just have these blank text documents that I just type all my ongoing thoughts into every day. And that's where I do most of my thinking and questioning and challenging beliefs. All right. So my last question is a variation on, on a question earlier you said you don't like, which will be interesting, but it has a different twist. So it actually is, what's a personal or professional mistake you've made? It either, for a lot of people, it's repeated or singular, but that you learn the most from, that, that you look back and say, hey, maybe, yeah, so maybe it's not a mistake, but I'm curious more from a learning perspective. Hmm. For some reason, the one that's coming to mind is misclassifying myself and what I'm doing. Hmm. Like years ago, I would have said that I'm a programmer and entrepreneur. And yes, sometimes I write a little blog post sharing what I've learned, but that's just something on the side. But the whole time, something never felt quite right about this, right? Like anytime I was around other entrepreneurs, I'd find myself getting tired quickly. Like, you know, just when you just, there's some conversations you just, you catch yourself just getting physically tired, like sleepy. And there are other conversations that, you know, fill you full of caffeine. And so I just noticed whenever people wanted to talk business and talk entrepreneurial things, I would just like, I'd find myself just wanting to go to sleep. So I, I asked myself an interesting question just recently, just last year. I asked myself, who are my heroes? And it was just one of those journal questions like we're talking about. And I thought about it and I wrote them down. I wrote down like, you know, 12 people that were my, my heroes. And then I went back and I looked at that whole list. I was like, oh my God, oh my God, all 12 of these are authors. Like the people I look up to the most, the people that I would most like to meet, or if you do that um, question about, you know, you could have a dinner party and invite everybody. Dead or alive, yeah. Right. All of, you know, it's never entrepreneurs. I wouldn't bring entrepreneurs to dinner. I mean, programmers somewhat, but yeah, really my writers, I mean, my heroes are writers. And so I realized that I had been kind of like accidentally misclassifying myself or mis understanding what was really driving me that I realized I actually wanted to be a writer. So I kind of had this deliberate rearranging of my hierarchy of interests um, and reclassifying it in my own head. So that, yeah, I admitted that, yes, I enjoy programming, but I, I do it as a hobby. It's not like a, my main pursuit. It's like my main hobby that I enjoy. And yes, someday I'll probably start another business, but really my main love and top priority is writing. So you should start a business to help authors, just like you start a business to help musicians. <laughs> I don't know. That, that, that's the, well, that's the difference between doing a, uh, a system. Yeah, we've all read the uh, E-Myth Revisited, I hope. Yeah. That, yeah, that's the, you know, the difference between being a cook and opening a restaurant. No, right. maybe you actually just want to be a cook. Uh, you don't want to turn it into a whole system. So I think my writing is something I'm not going to systematize. All right. Well, we'll wait and see what's next. <laughs> and so, by the way, like I said a bit ago, um, I really like meeting the people that listen to these interviews. It's actually the main reason I do this. You know, obviously I'm not here promoting anything. I got nothing to pitch. I'm not doing this for the money. Uh, these days, my currency, I really enjoy meeting people who listen all the way through these kind of interviews. So yeah, if you listened all the way to the end of this, please go to sivers.org slash contact and send me an email. My email address is just in big letters there and I still read and reply to every email and I really enjoy meeting the people that I meet through these things.
Yeah, and Derek's website and how he set it up is an example in minimalism. It's really, his newsletters are short, it's concise, you can see what he's working on. It's a great, it's very different. So it's a, you should check it out uh, either way and reach out. And I, I can attest he does he does write back. Um, and anything else you're working on? You, I, I thought you had some books coming out soon. Yeah, I do. Um, my next two books are already done. And I was just going to follow the... The typical template of the day. Um, well, actually, my, my previous book was on Penguin. And so Penguin, like a very sweet woman there that's like my main rep at Penguin Portfolio. And she's, she's wonderful. We've gone out to dinner. She's a fan of my work. And she said, we'd like to publish your next book. And I said, I think I want to do this self-publishing. I enjoy doing things myself, um, even if it's the hard way, even if it earns less. I really enjoy that process. But then I thought I was still just going to follow the typical template and just put them out through Amazon like everybody does. But then I started feeling a little like rebellious punk. This is so not a surprise, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> like, I was just like, you know, hold on. There was something, when I started CD Baby in, in the mid-late 90s, there was a certain kind of indie music spirit where all these musicians who had been signing their rights away to EMI and Universal and these big corporations were now suddenly like, man, I don't need to sign away my rights. I can do this shit myself. You know, even if I'm going to earn less, like I get to keep my own rights. And so I'm feeling kind of punk about this. Like, I think I might not even sell my book on Amazon. Huh. Like, I think I just, I'm going to put it on my own site, sell it directly and ship it directly and have the downloads directly on my own site, um, at least for quite a window of time. Maybe I'll put it on Amazon afterwards, but I'm really enjoying just kind of going kind of punk and doing this all myself. I, I'm sure you'll make it work and I'm excited to actually, I'm excited to see, see it works. Cause I think there are a whole bunch of new models out there and uh, yeah, just doing what everyone else is doing often doesn't produce a, a disproportionate result. Right. Or you can, once you start questioning those kind of assumptions, you start to realize other things you can do if you do it a different way, right? Like right. by keeping the sales on my own site, I realized I can do personal dedications. Like I can ask somebody if they want me to dedicate the book to them. And it's, it's generating an ebook on my server in the moment. So I can have every ebook be personalized to your name. And then I realized I could do the same thing with audiobooks. You want me to personalize the audiobook? And you also know your customers, right? Which you don't in the right. In the world. Yeah. I get, yeah. You get the direct relationship and it's like, you get to customize things that can't be customized if you do it through Amazon. It's like, I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm enjoying nerding out on this. As you can tell, I'm not, not driven by the big bucks and the, uh, and looking big. I'm, I enjoy the process. I enjoy the control. I enjoy the creativity. Might as well, as we said before, you might as well enjoy the journey. Yeah. Anyway, thanks for a fun conversation. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, thank you for coming on. And uh, I know we had to reschedule once. Um, I've been a huge fan of your work for years, as I said, and, and, and you did not disappoint. So thanks again <laughs> for, for spending uh, an hour and a half with us. Thanks, Bob. All right, to our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Derek and his work on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. And if you enjoyed this episode today with Derek, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review as it helps new users discover the show. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, all you have to do is scroll down to the library icon, click on Elevate, go down on the bottom and leave your review. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating.
This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.